Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Lily Jamali, and we begin in Sacramento, where the state assembly has advanced a possible constitutional amendment that would once again allow affirmative action in California. KQED politics reporter Katie Orr has the details. The measure, ACA 5, would repeal a current section of the California Constitution written in the 1990s that prohibits the state from considering identities like race and gender in public education, hiring, and awarding public contracts. San Diego Democrat Shirley Weber authored the bill. She says the current state of the country demonstrates race and gender still matter. California's regressive ban on equal opportunity programs such as affirmative action denies women and people of color a level playing field in the workplace and in education. The measure now goes to the Senate. If ultimately approved by two-thirds of the members, it can be placed on the November ballot for voters to decide on. For the California Report, I'm Katie Orr in Sacramento. You might have seen those lists floating around on social media or your favorite food blog. Lists of Black-owned restaurants and businesses, along with the suggestion that patronizing these establishments is a way to support the Black community and protest police brutality. On its face, supporting Black-owned businesses is a way to help to show solidarity. But food reporter Ruth Gabreyesus picked that apart in a commentary for KQED's food blog, Bay Area Bites. Earlier, she explained why she thinks going out to eat is an inadequate response to police brutality. I'm not sure in what way eating at a black-owned restaurant addresses that. And the framing of these lists and eating at a black-owned restaurant right now, that transaction in my eyes is not a response or an objection to police brutality. I think it just is satisfying a hunger maybe for action or satisfying just a simple hunger because someone wants to eat at a local restaurant. I'm not sure that it actually addresses the issue at hand. So it sounds like you're saying the problems we're confronted with here are way bigger than than going out and supporting a local business. Are you saying that folks shouldn't seek out a Black-owned restaurant to, you know, to help support it? As people in the public and the general public are looking for ways to support the movement for Black lives or the movement against police brutality, they can certainly eat at Black-owned restaurants, but that doesn't actually directly address the problem that has landed us where we are today. So it sounds like a short-term fix, or not even that, a short-term effort to try to do something, but one that sort of rings hollow, ultimately. Yeah, I think it's a capitalist impulse that feels good maybe in the short term, but if examined, does not really lend itself to actually answering the questions um, that are posed through the tragedies that we've seen uh, with the continuous killing of Black people in this country. All right. An unconventional take from Ruth Gabreyesus. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Let's turn to immigration now. An estimated 28,000 essential workers here in California could be at risk of deportation. That's if the courts allow President Donald Trump to end humanitarian protections called Temporary Protected Status, or TPS. KQED's Farida Javala Romero spoke with one Bay Area man who's afraid his future in the U.S. could come to an abrupt end at any moment. Fernando Flores has worked for the same waste management company for 16 years. Six days a week, he wakes up at 3.30 a.m. and heads to his job at San Mateo County's only active landfill. He drives a truck that's 64 feet long, transporting thousands of gallons of contaminated liquid waste from the landfill to treatment plants. During other shifts, he picks up trash and compost from homes in the city of Half Moon Bay. He says he's proud to provide an essential public service that keeps local cities clean. And he adds, it's something that has to happen almost every single day. We don't stop, he says. The Trump administration has been moving for years to end temporary protected status for most people in the program, including immigrants from El Salvador, like Flores. Congress established TPS 30 years ago to allow immigrants to stay here when they couldn't return safely to countries ravaged by war and natural disasters. The Trump administration wants these immigrants gone, arguing that protections are no longer necessary. TPS holders and others sued, and the courts have kept the program alive while they consider the issue. But now, during the pandemic... They are the people who are keeping our country moving right now. Nicole Svalinka is a researcher with the liberal think tank Center for American Progress. She says more than 130,000 TPS holders nationwide are essential workers. Really, these are the people that we're relying on now, the people to keep our shelves stocked, the people to keep our streets cleaned. And they're doing this knowing that at any moment their future in the United States could change. Last year, L.A. Congresswoman Lucille Roybal Allard introduced the American Dream and Promise Act, which would have given TPS holders a path to U.S. citizenship. The House passed it, but Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell blocked it from going further. And while there was a temporary TPS extension in one of the COVID-related bills this past spring, it didn't make it into the final legislation. Flores says he feels TPS holders are just not a priority for federal lawmakers or the president. Flores's partner and daughter are U.S. citizens who depend on his salary which goes away if he has to return to El Salvador, a country with one of the highest murder rates in the world, according to Human Rights Watch. He's placing his hopes on a three-judge panel at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in Pasadena. They're expected to rule soon on whether the program can continue. And in the meantime, Flores keeps going to work every day. For the California Report, I'm Farida Jabala Romero. Sticking with immigration, the future of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program now rests in the hands of the U.S. Supreme Court. Janet Napolitano created DACA as Homeland Security Secretary under President Obama, and in her current role as president of the University of California, has taken the lead in the legal fight over whether DACA is legal. In an interview, I asked President Napolitano about the UC's next move if so-called dreamers end up losing their status. 
We will provide uh, support to our DACA students. We have a legal services clinic for our undocumented students. Some of them may actually be able to change their immigration status uh, if they work with a a lawyer who's experienced in the immigration law. But there's a a big concern here because along with deferring any deportation, if you're in DACA, you get work authorization. And DACA students primarily, you know, come from poorer families and they need to work to be able to go to school. And so we are evaluating what our options are there. They're not uh, terrific options, but mm-hmm. uh, philanthropy, private fundraising to help support these students is definitely part of the, the solution here. And potentially some financial help? And, and potentially some financial help. Yeah, yeah. So we, we estimate that at the University of California, I think this is a conservative estimate that we have some 1,700 DACA students. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what's ironic about the case in the in the Supreme Court, uh, there was a supplemental brief filed pointing out that 29,000 DACA recipients across the country are actually healthcare workers. They're hmm. nurses, they're respiratory therapists, some of them are physicians. Uh, to put them under the risk of deportation at this particular point in time, it makes no sense whatsoever. If the Supreme Court ends up siding against DREAMers, is there a game plan to fill the positions that they would leave behind within the UC? Not in that way. One of our next steps would obviously be to continue to urge the Trump administration to leave the program in place, because just because the Supreme Court rules that the administration can rescind the program the way it did, doesn't mean it ought to rescind the program. And then uh, Congress will need to get involved should the Supreme Court rule against us. In our interview with President Napolitano, we also asked about a movement among a group of UC Santa Cruz grad students who went on strike over pay just before the pandemic hit California. Back in March, it looked like students on other campuses were ready to follow. Hearings over unfair labor practices filed by their union begin this month. We asked President Napolitano about her position on that dispute now. The graduate students who were on strike, it was a it was an unlawful wildcat strike. We have a, a union, we have a collective bargaining agreement. Uh, we simply seek to enforce the agreement that uh, the students themselves uh, voted on and approved. So they have filed some complaints against uh, us in connection with the Wildcat strike. We have filed a complaint against the union for not enforcing the no-strike provisions in their collective bargaining agreement. You know, one of the uh, chief values we get from a collective bargaining agreement is the assurance of labor peace and that there will not be strikes while there is a contract in place. And we think PERB, uh, which is the body that hears these kinds of issues, ought to enforce uh, the contract that the union and its members agreed to. So I've spoken to, I think a lot of us uh, in the news have spoken to members uh, of of the union, people who went on strike. One of them I know was making something like twenty thousand a year in Santa Cruz, where you know the cost of of living is pretty expensive in a place like that. It's expensive in l a. It's expensive in Berkeley. Do you think that twenty one thousand twenty two thousand dollars a year is a living wage in a place like Santa Cruz? 
Well, I think you have to uh, look at the the total compensation uh, that graduate students get. They get a waiver of tuition. They get health insurance. They get uh, a pretty hefty child care subsidy. Um, so the overall package is very competitive and, and very competitive with other grad student compensation packages around the country. So, you know, we think it was a fair deal when it was struck. It will be, you know, renegotiated, obviously, when uh, the contract is due to expire. I think it has another two years to go. And that would be the appropriate time for uh, these kinds of issues uh, to be raised. It's not appropriate, however, for grad students to hold undergraduate grades hostage, uh, which is what was occurring here. You know, they have a contract. Part of that agreement is that um, they, they post grades, they post them in a timely manner. Uh, they get all of the benefits that I've described, plus some. And, uh, you know, a wildcat strike really undercuts the core of why we have collective bargaining to begin with. Okay. I also want to get your reaction to reports. Uh, I think Vice News was the first to, to report this, that the UC Santa Cruz Police Department coordinated with the state's National Guard to do surveillance on students during those strikes. just want to have you address concerns that that situation was approached like a military operation in the view of some. Yeah, that, that, that question is probably more appropriately addressed to the campus. They, they all have the, the real detail on that. But I, I will tell you that, you know, the Santa Cruz campus is very hilly. And uh, it, it wasn't, uh, I don't think there was so much coordination as uh, UC uh, uh, Santa Cruz police and National Guard, knowing where each other, um, wh- where they were, because you can't, you know, you, c- you couldn't see them. So, uh, because just of the topography of the campus. So I think some of those practicalities came into effect. So so this notion that there was surveillance happening to repress protesters, w- what's your response to that? Because that's the charge, that, that it was not about logistics, it was about suppressing protest. Well, I, you know, <laughs> I don't think the protests were suppressed. Uh, they happened. Uh, they were very active. And the kind of anti-protest surveillance, that's the perception. I think it's an inaccurate one. Okay. Given the moment that we're in, I have to also ask you about the role of police, uh, not just during those strikes, but in general. Um, we're seeing, you know, this notion of defunding the police in, in departments across the country, which would have been unthinkable to a lot of people just a couple weeks ago. Is there any discussion about defunding the uh, the police departments within the UC? Not defunding, but we want to make sure uh, that our police um, are well-trained, are um, using best practices in terms of de-escalation, that um, complaints, uh, when made, are handled properly, that there's reporting and accountability, and uh, that we have a system-wide uh, use-of-force policy. So there's actually a campaign of eight fundamental actions that reduce the risk of violence by police departments. And we are implementing all of those. And we had a a very extensive policing task force a year ago that came out with a report with a number of recommendations, all of which are being implemented by the campuses as we speak.
That was UC President Janet Napolitano. And that's the California Report for this Thursday, June 11th, a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. Be well and stay safe. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Earth Justice, a national nonprofit law organization fighting for the right to a healthy environment. Earth Justice, because the earth needs a good lawyer. And Paint Care, ideas for storing leftover paint to keep it fresh and tips for using it up can be found at paintcare.org. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles. The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as like the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.